0: So, Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, and we thank you for your grace and mercy to your people through history. May we have um, soft hearts and open ears this morning to hear your words and to put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been reading the biography of John Bunyan recently. He was a Bedford tinker. In the time of the English Civil War, he became a pastor in the church there. Uh, But when the monarchy was restored after uh, Oliver Cromwell, under King Charles II, royalists took over control of parliament, and he was put in prison for 12 years, simply because he was preaching the gospel in a private church meeting. Uh, He, of course, became famous as the writer of the classic Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sorry to say the people that arrested him and had him put in prison simply for preaching in a church meeting were themselves churchgoers. Anglicans, in fact. They insisted it was illegal to conduct worship in any way other than by the Anglican prayer book. It's a fascinating lesson, isn't it, that man-made religion easily becomes the enemy of real Christian faith. If you look at the Bible, that's often the pattern in the Bible, that man-made religion is a hindrance to meeting and serving God, not a help. People prefer to follow our own traditions, don't we, rather than listening to the words of God. Of course, it's why Jesus was crucified. And you look at the story of Stephen in Acts, and yes, at one level, this is the story of the church's first martyr. Uh, It is. He is the martyr at the beginning of Acts. But it's much more than that. It shows us why religion becomes the enemy of real faith. It shows us how that animosity between religion and faith will not stop God spreading his word. That's the theme of our series, the theme of Acts. God spreading his word through his people. Stephen first appeared in chapter 6, verse 5. He's a man, we're told, of remarkable grace and power. One of seven wise and spirit-filled men appointed by the apostles to administer care among Greek-speaking widows in the church. Uh, And when he gets into trouble, it's not his marvelous deeds, but his preaching that causes trouble. People don't like it members of the Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. They speak up against the gospel he's preaching. If you look at verse um, 11, uh, he's so wise that they can't reply, and so they set up people to lie about him. Then they stir up the crowds and the leaders to arrest him, and then in verse 12, he goes before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. And chapter 7, we didn't have most of it read, but it's his long speech, if you like, his defense case in court before the Sanhedrin. And they've accused him, if you look at verse 13, of two errors, two blasphemies, in fact, is what they call them, that he has been, they say, teaching. They say he's been attacking the temple... Even though, in fact, um, Jesus predicted simply that one day the temple would be destroyed. He promised that his own body, which he called the temple, his temple, would be destroyed. And he'd raise it again. Neither Jesus nor Stephen, we're pretty sure, ever predicted that they themselves would attack or destroy the temple. They accused him, secondly, of attacking the law. Uh, The law given through Moses, the Ten Commandments, and so on. And again, Jesus did say he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He clearly was challenging people's understanding of the law, um, but Jesus fulfills it. He's the the end to which the law points, um, beyond which, in fact, he goes. So probably Stephen, again, has done no more than teach what Jesus taught about the Christian approach to obeying God's law. Stephen answers the accusation in chapter 7, Both accusations, attacking the temple, attacking the law, through a a very Jewish thing, a very long recounting of Israel's history. 53 verses altogether of chapter 7. And because we didn't have most of it read, I'm just going to summarize it um, on the screen for us. really in four sections, then a, then a kind of conclusion, an accusation at the end. So just glance at it now. We didn't have it read, but it will help you to look at it. Just glance as we're skimming over it now. Verses 2 to 8. He talks about Abraham, how Abraham obeyed God when he was called to leave his people and to go to the promised land, to inherit land and children and blessing. And in response, Abraham obeyed, went and was circumcised as a sign of the covenant with God. Then second, verses 9 to 16, Joseph. Joseph, says Stephen, was rejected by his brothers. Remember the technical dream coat? And sold as a slave into Egypt. His wisdom enabled him to become a ruler in Pharaoh's household. And the rescuer of his people when they fell into famine. So again, a theme there of uh, obedience, of leaving your people, going to another place, and being a rescuer. Thirdly, Moses, verses 17 to 38, he rescued a fellow Israelite being beaten up in Egypt. He fled for his life. Even his own people rejected him. God met him at the burning bush at Mount Horeb, Exodus chapter 3 and sent him back to Egypt to rescue his people from slavery. But after the Exodus, he gathered them at Mount Sinai, God gave his word through him, the Ten Commandments, and the people again rejected him. See the themes of rescue and rejection. Then in verse 39, Stephen moves on to talk about what happened next. And he says, Moses was rejected. Moses brought the law, but God's people preferred instead to go back to Egypt, if they could, and to worship idols, the calf that they made in the time of Aaron and worshipped. They preferred, instead of the tabernacle that Moses gave them as a sign of God's presence through his covenant, traveling with them, they preferred later, through David and then Solomon, to build a fixed building, a temple, as if to keep God in a box and so Stephen concludes as we saw in verse 51 that was read for us he finishes by accusing his accusers, he turns the tables, he puts them in the dock and accuses them of having stiff necks, of not listening to God's messengers, not receiving God's rescuers and that's he says been the pattern of God's people So that's his speech, and I think it really does address very directly both the accusations against him. He attacks the temple, he attacks the law, but he does it in order to turn the message and the gospel back at his accusers. So we're going to look at those two themes again with these two questions, which I think are the questions he's really asking. First question Stevens asks is this Where does God live? I wonder how you'd answer that. Where does God live? You see, Stephen's telling us here God cannot be domesticated. You can't keep him in a building, even a temple. God is mobile in the Bible, able to be wherever his people are, and he's without physical boundaries, without any boundaries. You can't pin him down. So Abraham travelled, left his people in obedience, went to the Promised Land. God was with him. Joseph was sold far away to Egypt. God was with him there. Moses experienced God's revelation in the desert at Mount Horeb and then met with God up the mountain at Mount Sinai. God was there. God gave a tabernacle so that wherever his people moved, the sign of his presence would go with them, even into the promised land. And in none of those, says Stephen, was there a temple. Not even mentioned, not a word in any of them about a temple, and yet the Lord is present in all of them, wherever his people are. And so, Stephen winds up by saying, When Solomon decided to build a temple for the Lord, against really the Lord's advice, this was a bad idea. He says in verse 48, however, that's an important however, isn't it? It's kind of a but. Despite building the temple, the Most High does not live, verse 48, in houses made by human hands. It's a mistake to think he does. Quotes Isaiah In verse 49, where the Lord challenged that idea that he could be pinned down or kept in a boundary in a building. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and the earth is my footstool. Why do I need a man-made house? It's rather like, imagine, Romeo and Juliet building a shed at the end of their garden when they're married. Had they got married, of course and thinking they could put Shakespeare in it. You can't build a house for your creator. He's everywhere, and he's your creator. Now, here's why I think this matters, this thing that God is mobile. God doesn't have physical boundaries. First thing, if you're someone here this morning, and you're looking for God, and some of us are this morning, aren't we? Don't think you'll find him particularly in Notre Dame Cathedral. Or even St. Paul's Cathedral. Look for the Lord where he reveals himself, in his word, in the Bible, in Christ, supremely the word made flesh, in his people, amongst whom today he lives with all our faults by his spirit. Look for him where he may be found. It's not, you see, that any of us found that God walked off one day and left us. It's that we turned our backs and left him, isn't it? That's why we can't meet him, why we haven't found him yet. We turned our backs, but he came to us in Christ as one of us. He died on the cross for us, such is his love, such his desire to pay for our sins. He is now close to all of us if we'll just turn around. For we we'll just recognize him in Christ and put our trust in him. It's his purpose to call each one of us to respond to him, to know him, to honor him, to be blessed by him, that we might know his presence. Wouldn't it be amazing this morning if you were the person that turned around and found Christ and knew his living, loving presence from this moment? Why not ask the person who's sitting next to you at the end, how do I do that? How do I respond? We'd love to give you a copy of the gospel, um, which we have uh, over in the bookstore over coffee, that you can begin that relationship. So don't look in a place. Look in Christ. Look in the Bible. Look in people. Secondly, some of us here are Christians, and how easily we find it, don't we, as Christians, to start replacing Christ with man-made rules and religion. Things that we can see and touch, rather than the word that we hear. It's a big theme in the Bible. The, The error of those that arrested Stephen was to put their focus on religious heritage. A building we can see, sacrifices we can give and make and do. Moses whom we can idolize, even if we don't listen to his words. How easily we do that. The history of the church is listed with well-meaning religious people blindly opposing gospel work out of a misplaced belief that we can localize God in a building or in a ritual. And this morning, we, we share the bread and wine that Jesus gave us at the Last Supper, not because this is a ritual that somehow brings God into our presence physically. The bread does not become... This is simply orthodox Anglican Bible teaching. The bread does not become the body of Christ. The wine does not become his blood, and yet they are powerfully, spiritually, the symbol of his presence as well as his death. So be very careful with religion, with ritual. We love the physical, the visible, don't we? But it's the word that we hear that we need. Where does God live? Well, he lives. He's mobile. He lives everywhere. And especially he lives in Christ and through the risen Christ in us, in his people. Second big question. That's the first one, isn't it, about the temple. Where does God live? Here's the second big question. How has God obeyed? How do we obey God? You see, Stephen's opponents are saying he's telling people not to obey the law of Moses. And Stephen replies, Well, you're God's people. You should know all about breaking the law. You've been doing it for a long time. He says, You've got a track record in the Bible of rejecting the words of God and not listening to his messengers. He says, Moses, going back through the story again, Moses was raised up as a rescuer, given the commandments of God to pass on to you, but you didn't listen. You rejected the words of God and you built a golden calf instead. He quotes the prophet Amos, who warned about making idols. Uh, idols are simply, by the way, any created thing, any man made thing that, that we ascribe ultimate value to instead of God. So it could be a golden calf or a statue. It could be a religious sacrament that we idolize. It could be a a thing. A new mobile phone becomes an idol. A person that we idolize. All created things and creatures. We love them because they're visible and tangible. And yet, says Stephen, to follow them, to ascribe worth to them in that way, is to turn your back on the words and the works of God. And he says, "We've God's people, we've been doing that for centuries. Not receiving the messengers God sent, Moses, Joseph, and now supremely his son, Jesus. Not listening to the words he's given us, the Ten Commandments, the words of Jesus, the gospel I am preaching to you. We've done that for centuries. And now he says, verse 51, it's time to make our minds up. This is his, as it was a sermon, this is his application moment, verse 51. He says, okay, that's enough about me, what about you, hearers? See what he says in verse 51? It's it's quite blunt, isn't it, to say the least. This is not the way to address, certainly a member of the royal family. It's not the way to address, you'd think, those that are just about to stone you. But this is what he says. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet our ancestors did not persecute? Implied answer, no. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now he says, now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who've received the law... This is the irony. You've received the law, given through angels, but have not obeyed it. How do you obey God? Well, by receiving the messengers he sends us, especially the Lord Jesus, the word of God. And by listening to and obeying the words he's given us through those messengers. See the point? He's saying, look, I'm actually the one obeying God because I... Follow Jesus. I seek to live out his teaching. You are the ones rejecting him. You accuse me of breaking the law, but you are breaking God's words all the time. He says, You're, you're stiff necked. You know what stiff neck means? It's that it's kind of refusing to bow your head, refusing to follow the instructions of another, refusing, in other words, to submit to God and receive his son. He says, you've got uncircumcised hearts. Abraham was circumcised as a sign of his trust in the Lord. He's desiring to obey God. You, however, he says, in your hearts, you've refused to do that. Your hearts are selfish. I think you'll agree, won't you, looking at that conclusion, the whole speech, really. Stephen's speech was, was not exactly guaranteed to convince his hearers was it but his conclusion is certainly guaranteed to condemn him he knows where this is going to end and of course that's how it ends he's stoned to death the first martyr but here i think is how this message of stephen how is god obeyed speaks to us today first one is the obvious question for you for me have you a stiff neck So much so that to this point, you have rejected God's great, glorious, merciful rescuer, the Lord Jesus. Does your stubborn heart stop you doing that? Even, you see, even a strong belief in right and wrong, a strong moral code, and our culture's got a strong moral code, it's not a biblical one usually, but even a strong moral code can be misguided. Even a, a religious dedication to a certain model of right and wrong can be completely wrong if we take it from our culture or from our religion instead of from the bible it's possible to be dedicated to a cause and yet to be stiff-necked about the messengers that god has sent us i was like that for the first 17 years of my life i Remember, with with horror the moments when I realized just how I had shut God out. I'd refused, as it were, to receive his medicine that I needed. It takes you to a miracle of God to soften a heart, uh, to circumcise our hearts by his spirit and soften us to him. I urge you, if that's you, just ask God to help you to listen and to receive, and to respond to the messenger, Jesus, that he sent. Secondly, if you think of yourself as a Christian this morning, you and I, we should ask ourselves, shouldn't we, whether my faith is one of outward obedience or inward obedience, or outward religion, I should say, or inward obedience. It matters, you see, little to God that you've been a churchgoer for a long time, Or you've done this and this and this for the church. That matters little to him. What matters is that I ask Christ to be my Savior and my Master. That I long to hear His words and by His grace to put them into practice. It's our verse for the year, isn't it? The one who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a builder building on rock. Ask the Lord, if that's you, to help you daily. To receive his word and by his spirit to live it out. That's obedience in the Bible. Living it out in how we love and how we share him in our families, in our workplaces, in our private lives. Third thing some of us here know what it is to find that hearing and living it out. It's a work of progress. But we discover the joy of knowing that Jesus speaks to us daily through his word and of living that out in practice. How glorious it is to find that rock, to build a house on something solid, to find a master whose words and works guide us in daily life and rescue us daily from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, one day from the very presence of sin in heaven. My question is, who can you and I pray for this week that doesn't yet have that joy and that security? Who can we pray for? I hope you're praying for five people if you're a member of our church. It's part of our vision is to pray for five. Who can you pray for this week? For the opportunity and the way to point them to this Savior, to the rescuer God sent, to the messenger of the Lord Jesus, so that they too, by his help, can come to listen and respond. Why not pray for them right now in the quiet? We finish, as the story finishes, with Stephen. At the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, he is stoned. And as he falls under those rocks, he sees this vision, doesn't he, of Jesus. The Son of Man, he says, I see him standing at the right hand of God. And in the Bible, the Son of Man is none other... Than the glorious, vindicated human being that stands in heaven. Vindicated by God and reigning over his people. Of course, that's Jesus, the son of man, of Daniel's vision. Now, Jesus is standing in heaven, certainly to welcome Stephen, as he comes to glory. But even more, he's standing to defend Stephen. Stephen against his accusers. Isn't that wonderful? He stands to defend Stephen and to accuse his enemies, therefore, of getting it so badly wrong. Religion, the enemy of true faith. And that's the amazing thing about this story, that Jesus stands there vindicating Stephen at the end. It just shows that those whom man-made rules condemn for their faith in Christ, he will declare innocent. Those who stand up from today, however badly treated in our culture around the world, Jesus declares innocent. That's what counts. And that's not the end of the story. Because chapter 8 begins with that mention of Saul. Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and samaria if you're here last week you'll know that there's a hint there that this is not the end of the story that man-made religion and rules will not stop the spread of god's word they can kill stephen they can banish his other accomplices but god's just going to use that to spread the word beyond jerusalem to judea to samaria and as jesus promised to the very ends of the earth There'll be more next week and the weeks that follow on Saul, who's going to become a key worker in God's kingdom. And more on the spread of the gospel to Samaria and beyond. But if we ever think that God's desire to reach the lost is going to be stopped by man-made religion, then let's be sure, as Acts tells us, no man-made rules will stop God reaching the lost. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for coming to be Son of God in human form, messenger from God the Holy One and Saviour of all who come to you. We pray that you will reveal yourself to us and give us soft hearts, flexible necks, to respond to you as you are, Son of God and Lord, and to listen to your words and not reject them. And we pray for your people everywhere facing hostility, facing animosity. We pray you'll protect your people and give us boldness to see you as you are, and to speak of you in the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.